Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. Hi everyone, it's me. I'm back. I know that the podcast episodes have been a bit intermittent recently and I'm sorry about that, but I've just been really busy. Um, if you've been following me on Facebook, you'll see we've got a puppy at the moment and puppies are just uh, time consuming, aren't they? So that's basically what's been happening. And then even when I'm at home and I'm kind of able to do some work and I have some time, there is a lot of dog play going on in the background, which is not necessarily conducive to recording podcast episodes. Here is a little sample of said dog play. <coughs> so you can see it's just a little bit difficult for concentration to be achieved when that is going on in the background that's my concentration as much as your concentration and listening to what i'm saying so anyway i have managed to record an interview at some point over the last kind of week or so and it's with the super amazing hannah brannigan so i'm just going to introduce hannah to you because some of you may not have heard of her so Hannah is, in her own words, a self-proclaimed training nerd. She is fascinated by behavior and learning and very enthusiastic about bringing science-based solutions and thought processes to dog sport training. Hannah enjoys training and competing with her own dogs in a variety of sports. They don't include gun dog training or gun dog sports, as far as I'm aware. She does have a border terrier and she's got uh, a collie. And she has some taverance as well, if I've said that right. She has dabbled in lots of other sports, though. So she's dabbled in obedience, agility, confirmation, IPA or Schutzhund, and rally. And she's also dabbling a little bit in tracking and flyball. So she is very interested in the details of how dogs learn and generally in implementing excellent training, whatever dog sport is. So I kind of really admire her for those qualities and I kind of get on board with that because I've learned lots from other dog sports when it comes to gun dog training. As you know, I'm a bit of a magpie and like to kind of import things where I find useful stuff. So it's been kind of really refreshing to see that um, in Hannah as well. So 
Hannah's got two competition obedience DVDs out. She's got um, a, a DVD called Obedience Fundamentals, and then she has another DVD called Beyond Fundamentals. And the best way that I found to access these is to subscribe to the online uh, DVD streaming service, which is available from Tours of Dog. And I'll put the link to Tours of Dog in the show notes that you can find that. But basically, you can just pay like a monthly subscription. I think it's about. $45 or something and you can access this even if you're in the UK and you can watch anything on Tours of Dog so in my opinion just paying for like a month or two of access to Tours of Dog in order to be able to watch Hannah's brilliant DVDs I think is an excellent idea and then you can kind of watch them in a sort of binge competition obedience watching days um, I guess that's optional you could subscribe for longer and watch them in a more sensible protracted lengthy way if you wanted um, but anyway this way you don't need to wait for them to arrive in the post and you can get instant access to them online so yeah I'll put um, links to that in the show notes so do check out the show notes Hannah's also recently written a book focusing on competition obedience called awesome obedience and you can get this from Amazon UK and US um, and I assume other Amazons as well. Can't say I've checked them all out. But yes, um, it's widely available. It's called, again, Awesome Obedience. And it's been very successful. And Hannah is also on the faculty at the Benzie Dog Sports Academy, where she often runs online courses, seminars and workshops on various aspects of competition obedience or obedience foundations. Hannah is the host of the podcast Drinking from the Toilet, and it's one of the first dog sport podcasts which I discovered, and many of you may already listen to it. If you don't already listen to it, I highly recommend that you go and find it and subscribe to it. So again, it's called Drinking from the Toilet, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. And I've learned a lot, really, from Hannah's attention to details. So I think Hannah has real skills as a trainer. And she's really good at breaking behaviours down and observing very closely what's happening with them and, and where they might be going wrong and then working with and from that. So she's evolved approaches to training various behaviours which use very clean behavioural loops. So you don't end up training unwanted stuff into a behaviour by accident. And this might be something a little bit geeky now, but I really think she's a trainer's trainer, as it were. Um, over the years, I've heard her talk about a few subjects which I thought would be really useful for a forestry gun dog audience, and I wanted to get her on the show to talk about these some more. So in this episode, we talked about food motivation, specifically how to work with dogs which are not very food motivated when they're outdoors in the field. So these would be your dogs that will take food probably when they're in the house, but when you're outside and there's games sent around um, or anything distracting happening, if you put food on their nose, they just are not interested or if they take it, you know, it's a bit like, well, if I absolutely have to eat this, then I will. But they're not really that motivated by it. And it's not really functioning as a reinforcer in that environment. So that is a specific situation I wanted to talk with her about because I'd heard her talk on her own podcast about a situation with one of her own dogs involving food motivation. So I wanted to kind of get her on to talk about that a little bit more in detail and to unpack it a little um, and then we also talked about planning training sessions and the importance of planning your training sessions rather than just sort of turning up and hoping that you will have like some sort of epiphany of what to be working on that day and what happens if you don't plan your training sessions and how things can go wrong. So there's lots more that I wanted to talk to Hannah about. I, the next on the list was talking about behavioral chains, but we never got that far. So maybe I can get back on the show at some future point. But I hope that this is useful. I'm sure it will be useful. And thank you again, Hannah, for your time. And here is Hannah Brannigan. 
Hannah, hi. Thanks so much for doing this and for giving up your time. Um, it's amazing. I have kind of been this passive consumer of everything that you have produced for so long. I've read your book and I've done loads of the Fenzy courses that you've um, offered and I'm just a huge fan. And so it's brilliant to be able to actually talk to you and have a dialogue with you rather than just kind of passively consume you. That sounds weird, but... <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Excellent. Um, also, we both speak really fast. I realized that from listening to your podcast. And so everyone listening might just want to, if podcast apps have like a, I know you can speed things up, but I don't know if you can slow them, slow them down. But anyway, we, <laughs> yes. yeah, we both speak really fast. Anyway, um, so I wanted to get you on the podcast, apart from the fact that you are just generally a brilliant dog trainer, I think. I think that there are certain things that you've talked about in your your own podcast, which is called Drinking from the Toilet, and which I highly recommend to everybody that's listening. Um, there are certain subjects that you've touched on, which I've just thought, although that's a really useful subject for us from a sort of gun dog perspective. And so I wanted to sort of get you on the show and kind of focus in on those subjects a little bit and, and see if you can help people explore them a bit more. Um, so the first subject was food motivation. And I know that with, with one of your dogs, you've experienced a bit of... Um, lack of food motivation and that you've managed to fix that or work on it in some way and yeah. so the first thing I wanted to get you to talk about is that whole subject sure um yeah okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor but I don't have a sponsor so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212 now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch but i hope you can appreciate the rhythm now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because i don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship i record it edit it upload it myself and i pay for the server I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... It's really, it's kind of, I've had kind of an interesting journey with, with food motivation. Um, and when I got started in training, you know, more of a reinforcement based um, kind of training techniques, we really, you know, mostly had food. Food is the most convenient reinforcer for training purposes, um, especially in the early stages when you, you want to be able to reinforce a lot of repetitions in a very short amount of time for efficiency and all animals eat food if they're alive. Um, and it's something you can put in your pocket, you can control it, you can control the beginning and end. So it makes just a really convenient reinforcer. Of course, it's not the only reinforcer available to us. It's you know, one small, tiny slice of the reinforcement world, but um, but it's a really handy one. Um, and the, the first dog that I was working with 
uh, when I was learning clicker training was a hound. And so food motivation was not an issue with him mm. at all. He would, he would eat an, until he died, I think, um, given the opportunity, uh, like, like a goldfish. But um, then um, from, from my hound, I then got into turves who are really kind of, uh, they seemed less food motivated to me, relatively speaking. I would now put them kind of in the middle of the spectrum <laughs> um, with now that I have you know, uh, many more years of experience uh, and a lot more dogs under my belt um, because their food, they would, under some contexts, um, food was very easy to work with. In fact, uh, my, both of my girls would be really intense about food and very like, you know, almost sharky um, alligators. And my male was eh, less intense about it. And for all of them under some circumstances, like as um, distractions or pressure or, or stress would increase the food, uh, their interest in going for food would, would decrease. Um, hmm. Most of them would still go for a, you know, a toy or a tug toy. Um, so I, you know, there's some genetics in there. Um, we did also cross train and protection sports. Um, and so I think there's, there's something, there's something in there, um, as far as, as, you know, they were more conditioned to, to bite things when they, hmm. when they were feeling, you know, stressed or pressured and, um, and so the interest in food would, would take a back seat. Um, and that was, that did improve, um, with conditioning, nothing that I did that was particularly systematic or even deliberate. Um, I think just kind of trial and error and accidental, um, even a stopped clock is right twice a day, uh, was able to improve that um, on both sides. But then, um, and then from there, I have a terrier who, again, eats food anywhere, um, as long as, you know, unless he's sick, he he will eat food on shiny floors and in front of a blow dryer and um, in new places. And so um, there, there's no difference there. So again, super easy um, in that we have other challenges. So I don't, I don't want to make terrier sound really easy all of the time, but, um, but then the universe said, you know what, Hannah, you need to learn how to deal with a dog that really won't eat at all. Um, and so I have a border collie puppy. Well, he's a teenager now. And, um, I have worked with client dogs and student dogs who struggled with eating food. And, um, most of the time, especially in, in my pet classes, most of the time they are in a good weight or heavy. Um, and it's really management, mm. um, just making sure that they're not feeding the dog right before class, um, decreasing their overall calorie relative, you know, caloric intake so that they're working for more of their food than they're getting um, out of the bowl. And usually that does the trick for the, the majority of the dogs that I've worked with. There's some exceptions. Um, and I certainly have had uh, client dog exceptions where, the problem was medical. Um, I remember I had two cases because the, the, they, they always seem to come in waves. Like I, I had a wave of Afghans at one point. This was a wave of, of reactive dogs that wouldn't take food. Um, and um, it was, I had a Sheltie and a Westie. And uh, at the same time, they were not in the same family. They just were like in the same six month period. And they had some reactivity issues. And that's why we were working together. And neither of them were very, very food motivated. They're both in perfectly good weight. They weren't overweight. Um, we, I, you know, gave my usual recommendations as far as management and, and uh, enrichment and working um, for their food and um, didn't just didn't really make much of an impact was getting kind of frustrated and one of the dogs went into the vet for an unrelated um, I think it was maybe I think it was the shelf day I don't remember for sure but for an unrelated um, thing issue and they happened to do an ultrasound and while they were in there looking at 
you know, her liver or whatever, noticed that her, uh, her intestinal walls looked a little bit thickened. So they went ahead and grabbed a biopsy and darn if she didn't have this low level inflammatory you know, GI thing going on. And when they treated that, all of a sudden her food motivation came back up to what I would consider a very normal average dog. Um, and wow. then this, yeah, and at the same time, this other dog um, within like six weeks of each other, um, similar kind of thing was diagnosed with uh, inflammatory um, food allergies and um, went on a diet trial. And after a few weeks, again, food, the interest in food came back up to what I would consider normal. And we were able to make a lot more progress. Now, I think there's probably two things going on there. Uh, but what was interesting to me with both of those was that neither dog was vomiting. Like neither dog was overtly ill. They just would eat enough to keep a normal weight and not really go out of their way to access it. Um, and so it made me kind of think, you know, how many times have I in my life felt like a little queasy? Um, I'm not throwing up or anything, but I also don't really feel like digging into a pizza, you know? Um, hmm. and, and it just makes me think gosh, how many dogs aren't super mo- food motivated that maybe just don't feel really well, but it's not, it's not particularly easy to diagnose cause they can't tell us. Um, so it's always just something that's, that's been flagged in my head. And I do think with those two dogs that probably it wasn't that just the food motivation, but I think also probably helping them feel better, improved their reactivity as well. You know, same kind of thing. If I don't feel really well. Um, and I've got kind of a headache. I'm, I tend to be a little more reactive. You can just ask my husband. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think there's a couple factors there, but um, so right. that, that's always something that I go. So the first thing, if I have a dog that's um, struggling with food motivation, I'll look at the look at the obvious. Um, you know, are they just getting too much food and they're not hungry? Um, and that's that's you know eighty percent of the cases that I work with. Um, and then always get a check. Uh, always want to rule out um, medical reasons, especially in kind of those more complicated cases. Um, it may there may or may not be anything, but I you feel like such a jerk if you don't, if you don't at least check, um, mm. before you go into a, a, you know, big behavior mod program. Um, mm. and then we get to dogs like, um, like my border collie and, um, it's a, apparently not at all uncommon in border collies. Um, I think some of the other herding breeds and other breeds, it probably comes up. Um, he is healthy. I have poured a great deal of money into making sure because wouldn't it be nice if it was something I could give him a pill for and not do work. Uh, but he's perfectly healthy. His thyroid is great. Blood's great. Um, he's, he just struggles to eat. It's a very weak behavior for him. Um, it, he does not eat well it, during mealtimes. Um, even as a puppy, he didn't eat very well. He's a normal, normal weight, a little bit thin, um, but you're kind of a sporting, sporty weight. Um, not emaciated or anything, um, but not overweight. And, um, he will struggle with like, you know, if I put, I usually feed my dogs out of like a, uh, you know, those, those fancy like plastic food bowls with the different shapes so that they have to kind of work to get the food out. Mm-hmm. So they usually eat out of that or some kind of enrichment toy, or sometimes uh, my older dog will eat out of just a regular bowl a lot of the time. Cause it's, he has a hard time just physically with that, but he's also ancient. Um, but um, he would, walk away like if the ceiling fan was on he couldn't uh, eat in the kitchen um and so there were a lot of these caveats that we would encounter oh if if um, the dishwasher is running he can't eat uh in the kitchen or you know when you try to eat feed him outside but if you're feeding him outside and the the light is you know shining through the leaves and the wind is blowing he can't eat outside and um sometimes he could eat in his crate and sometimes he would just walk like he would eat well for two or three days and then just walk away from his dinner um and that was kind of 
maddening. <laughs> yeah. And what were you doing in terms of training with him and being able to yeah, use food in training? I'm going to interrupt this fibreless discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. A lot of, a lot of desperate flailing. Um, so uh, in, in terms of food and in training, um, it was really hard. He would um, sometimes take food, but it would, it was very fragile. Uh, it would disappear very quickly in new environments. Um, just going outside again, if there's any kind of movement, the wind was blowing, he would just stare um, and couldn't respond to a click, couldn't respond to my voice. You could put food in front of his nose. Um, if there's anything exciting going on, like um, movement, cars going by, or or um, or the idea that movement might happen. Um, so like if I touched like the door handle of my car, um, it would it would we would lose the food eating, um, and he would go into like this border collie, really sticky um, mode, and. Um, and it was really, really frustrating because I wanted to do all the cool puppy training that I expected to do. You know, I got this dog to do training with um, was was my goal. <laughs> the reason the reason that I brought him home, um, and he has many wonderful qualities. I love a lot of things about him. He's very sweet. He's great with my daughter. Um, but it was really frustrating. I wanted to shape a behavior, and I could get maybe three lukewarm responses to a treat, and then he would just walk away. And um, it didn't matter, you know, you could, I went up in the value of the food, didn't matter. You know, you could have kibble or steak, liver, um, you know, hamburger, it didn't matter. Um, it, it, it was, it was just so it compared to whatever reinforcer he experiences when he sees movement, um, or hears, I think, sounds that are associated with movement, um, that reinforcers trumps food reinforcement for him. 
and hmm. so, yeah yeah um I'm, I'm just thinking about that in connection to like you mentioned your turves and and how they were a bit more into the whole bite work side of things and not so much into the food and I was also thinking about gun dogs because what we often hear is people try to train their dogs using food and want to use positive reinforcement but then you just you keep hearing things like oh they just won't take food we're outside or when we're out in the field they just won't accept any food and so therefore I can't train with food so we can't use positive reinforcement so we better go back to what we were doing before so that's kind of I kind of wanted I, I wondered if there's something in common with your 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 turves and your collie and these dogs which tend to be the hunting breeds which yeah. refuse the food yes yeah yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I think you're spot on there. That the, the one of the less one of the the dogs that taught me a lot of lessons about how to work around um, food eating as a behavior was a German Short Hair Pointer that I had. Uh, gosh, he's probably ten or twelve years ago, um, and he would you know once he stepped outside, if there was a bird or something, a movement that seemed bird like, he would fixate. Um, and it was very hard to get him to take food, um, and so I. I He's one, he's one of those dogs that, you know, we made it, we did finally make a lot of progress. It took three times as long as it should have. And I wish I could go back and train that dog again now, knowing what I know. Um, but we all have to learn. Um, and he was a big learning experience for me. Um, he was a client dog and he came from a complicated background. So we had, we had a lot of things that we were working through there. Um, and I think you're exactly right because the situations where, um, my Belgians would have trouble taking food. And in between the Belgians, I, I tend to lump, lump them all in together. I had a few Malinois people in there as well. Um, and um, it, for example, on the protection field, getting, especially the my first dogs that I was doing this kind of sport training with, um, once the possibility of a decoy was on the table, their interest in food fell off a cliff. Um, so trying to, there were a lot of things that I wanted to do as their, um, as their arousal went up, I really wanted to use food to help kind of adjust that so that I could, you know, be on the same planet as them and have them hear my voice and, and listen to, to cues. Um, and food would be really helpful there. And particularly with my, the very first dog that I did Shudson with, uh, she could not, in fact, trying to get her to take food was frustrating, was frustrating for both of us. And I did end up using punishment, um, and negative reinforcement with her because I didn't think I had any other options. It seemed impossible. Um, once we were out there, it was either biting or nothing. Um, so I think, and I've, I've encountered a similar, similar thing. I've tinkered a little bit in herding, um, getting my dogs to take food in, in, uh, when stock are in sight, um, is really hard because the, the, all of that arousal associated with the, the chasing, the, the, well, hopefully not too much chasing, hopefully it's controlled chasing because that's why you're trying to herd. But, um, but again, you know, they're, they're in that kind of category or sequence of behaviors and food is not part of that. Um, and again, with my, the first dogs that I worked in there, I just said, well, I'm just won't be able to use food. And I, and I just kind of assumed it was a, it was a, a done deal. Like it's a set, a set variable. I'm not going to be able to affect, um, and try to figure out ways to accomplish the training without using the food. And in a lot of the situations, if you also aren't particularly skilled at controlling the environment, um, whether because often, and I think in the case of, of herding and, um, and protection sports, the, the reinforcers are controlled by the decoy and the sheep, which you have limited control over. You'd think the human decoys would be easy to control, but they're not. They're, they're equal to sheep in my experience. <laughs> and so it's, it's really easy for the dog to get reinforced for something you don't like because 
you're not completely in control of that. And I've since learned a lot more about controlling the environment. So I could do, could do a better job with, with those. Um, but because I, I didn't have those skills early on, again, I felt like I had no choice, but to bring an aversive in, um, to, to interrupt, to try to interrupt that or compete with that other reinforcer. One of the things that, um, Goose, who was the, the pointer taught me, and this was a pet dog, um, that had been adopted by a really nice couple that were trying so hard to do right by this really challenging dog. And he was an adult. He was a four-year-old dog, I think, when they got him. Um, and he'd been used uh, in a kennel situation for breeding and just had just, he was, bless his heart, he was really just having a hard time um, being on the planet sometimes. And um, and so there was no reason to bring a lot of aversion. There's not a sport. Um, there, and for in his case, because the competing reinforcer was just like air, like the outside was the competing mm. reinforcer. Like the, what are you going to correct for? Um, it was, you know, it's fairly easy to correct for going for the stock. Cause I can see what the dog wants there. So that was you know, relatively easy, but, but with him, it was so, uh, it was so, it seemed unpredictable at the time. Um, I, again, I think probably less, less unpredictable now with more experience. Um, and what we ended up doing was figuring out, well, how do I, we, we managed to get him to eat food um, indoors. In fact, if you're indoors with the curtains closed, he was a pretty normal dog after a little bit of normal, kind of normal pet dog training kind of stuff. Um, but the second you stepped outdoors, you were, you were gone. He would hit the end of whatever leash you were on, no matter how long it was and, uh, and he couldn't hear you. And what we ended up doing with him was, okay, can, you can train in the living room, and simple stuff, targeting, stationing, um, a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and then, okay, we can open the curtains, which change the light. Okay, still able to take food, still able to do his targeting. Open the window. Now you can hear the outside. You can hear the birds and the wind blowing. And that was hard for him. Um, and we worked opening and closing the windows kind of alternately. Um, easy, hard, easy, hard, which is a pattern that I lean on a lot, especially in these kind of confusing cases. And... Um, until he was able to take food and do his targeting and his stationing with the, with the windows open. And then we opened the front door and that was a big jump because opening the front door had always predicted we're going to go outside where I will hit the end of the leash and stare out into the bushes and into the trees. Um, and so we had to close the door and open the door and adjust the distance from the door and got that. And then we did a lot, a lot, a lot of sessions of we're standing just like inside the foyer of the house, target, click, treat, step out on the porch, present a target he blew it you know he ignored it step back inside target click treat step back outside present the target step back inside target click treat step back outside present the target oh my gosh he looked at it click treat food didn't really go into his mouth we step right back inside present the target treat step back outside present the target he touched it we clicked he responded he took the food we stepped back inside and so following that pattern of from where he could eat to where he couldn't but then alternating between the two trying to kind of blur the contrast. Um, and every time we stepped outside, instead of going out into the yard and letting him rehearse the staring, we immediately stepped back inside where he could take the food. And so from where he could to where he couldn't, back to where he could. And eventually the that line disappeared and he was able to, on the porch, respond to his target cue, respond to the click and take the food and, and it, the sort of reach a baseline on the porch that he had um, inside just inside the door. And then we were able to gradually extend that bubble out to include the, the yard. Um, and at the time that, you know, we, they felt like their goals were met and we just, we stopped working together. Um, 
they were able to do a you know, little bit of a short normal walk just kind of around their neighborhood um always returning you know back to the house just by gradually extending that um that distance uh coming back to that point of success so so that is where i sort of sort of started with and that's usually the sort of thing that i do with my students and that's where i started with with figment um kali is first can i build a a can i build a bubble a little hermit crab shell where he can reliably eat the food and so i had to start with in the kitchen with the ceiling fan turned off um the dishwasher not running you know is the simplest environment possible where he's most reliably taking food and we we ate there um until that was pretty solid and then I started again, extending it out. And so we would step out into the, uh, the kind of the front. I don't have a huge house, so this didn't take that long. Um, to the front of the house and then back. Um, and really simple behaviors, the click cued to eat the food. I had paired that. I also used a lot of um, um, what we say motivating operations. So like time of day, um, all of our dogs know when it's dinner time and they know, you know the time leading up to it. It's, you know, it's 5.52, mama. <laughs> um, and so using that, that scheduling effect um, was really, really helpful. He's more likely to eat at the, uh, the, during that time period, especially more likely to eat when the other dogs are eating. Um, and so I could manipulate some of those variables to get that cue response to the click. And then again, moving it out into the house and then out um, outside and just alternating between inside, outside, inside, outside until that contrast disappeared and always coming back to the place where he can eat. Um, so then my next challenge was, all right, well, I need to do this away from my house because if I'm going to do sports with him, he's going to have to take food at you know, dog training buildings and, and um, at the agility field. And so I built eating in the car as um, another point of success, just like the kitchen. So at night at his mealtime, I brought his food out uh, to his crate in the car, popped him in the crate, gave him his food, he ate his food and we just did that for several nights in a row until being in the car meant um, it was, was a highly practiced behavior. It was a fluent behavior, eating his food in the car. And then I added the clicker to that, you know, can you be in your crate in the car, click and respond to the treat. And I'm just sticking treats through the crate door. And then can I touch the crate door, click and treat again? That was a hard one because touching the, the latch on the door predicted the door's going to open and you're going to get to blast out um, and be really aroused and excited. So it was sort of an, an arousal cue. Um, that was the opposite of eating food. So touch the crate door, click and treat, touch the crate door, click and treat until he could um, do that. And then, you know, can I move the latch and open the door um, and he could still respond to a click and a treat. And then again, going from inside the crate to outside the crate, inside the crate to outside the crate until he was able to reliably take the food um, outside the crate. And then we took that on the road. Um, and just it's con really conditioning that pattern gave me the leverage to then turn that into an actual training session. Wow. And so where are you with him at the moment? Are you able to use food as much as you would with any other dog or, or is there still some work to be done? I mean, with it's, the food? it's an ongoing work in progress. Um, and fortunately, you know, he's, he's 18 months now almost. And so his, like, I can, he has some toy skills now that I can use as well. Um, I'm real careful. This was something that my Belgians taught me. I'm real careful about maintaining a balance. So like, if he's not taking food well in a training session, I don't then bring out the toy. Um, to, to mask it, which is what I would have done before. And what I discovered in the past um, with, with the Belgians is that if they refuse food and then I bring out a, the toy, I am in fact reinforcing them for re food refusal. Hmm. 
and building a little dynamic there that I don't love. <laughs> um, yeah. That makes life a little harder. Um, so I, I try really hard to maintain a balance in every training session. If I'm bringing out a toy, I'm making sure that we're also working with food in that same context. Um, we just came home from uh, a training weekend um, up in Virginia, which is, um, you know, maybe three hours away um, training with uh, some of my um, zero to CD members. And we met up so we could work together in person and do some obedience. And um and he pretty much trained like a normal dog there. He, I was able to throw food. He chased it. He came back. He took food from my hand. He responded to the click. We were using food for um, some, his healing foundation stuff and positions. Um, and he worked really, really well. It's, it's still, it's, I'm, I'm always aware of it and I'm continuing to, um, I always start with the same routine. I start with offering him a treat in the crate and then we step out of the crate. Can you take a treat? Step into the crate. Can you take a treat? Um, for, and a lot of the training sessions is particularly the first day he was not able to take that first treat out of the crate, but as soon as he went back in the crate, he could take that treat. And then the second time he stepped out, um, he was able to take it. So it, just bringing that familiar pattern, that routine with us that we do at home that we did from the car. And now we're doing it in, you know, a, a different training facility, um, you know, in another state. And, um, and he was able to, to work you know, pretty normally. I, I think I would have, it would have been a mistake to to treat him like I do rugby, my terrier, um, and just kind of bring him out and start doing training with food. I don't think that that would have worked as well. But taking just that five seconds at the beginning of the session to set up that pattern, he we were then able to step into it and and move forward with with a very normal looking training session. I think I think people watching that didn't that haven't been paying attention to us for the last year would probably not have known that this was something that we struggled with. And do you find that the the way that you deliver the food has an impact in terms of his eagerness to eat it? Like if throwing the food makes it move and that if that's part of what was a reinforcer for him before yeah. with, yeah, does that? It's a good question. Um, and I, I think, well, as a dog trainer, I have to say it depends. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there's something to that. Um, I can, uh, I do... It, this is, this is hard to tease out scientifically because I, I do, because of the, the way that I like my training sessions, the way I like to structure my training sessions, I tend to use a lot of moving food anyways. I do very little, um, like kind of baby bird style, putting the food into the dog's mouth, I, almost none of that. Um, but I, I, I do think that I get probably a little more juice out of um, a flicked treat. The trade-off, of course, is if I toss the treat, in fact, I did have a few, a few reps which will probably caught on a video. Maybe I'll share it on YouTube later, but um, where the treat bounced a little bit too far and it got kind of out of my bubble of influence and he ran past that treat and then, you know, became engaged in the environment. So um, I like some movement, but I'm always aware of, am I keeping him close enough that we're going to be successful or am I, am I going to lose him uh, if I toss the treat too far? So I, I do think that there's something there in, in the how it's delivered. Yeah. I mean, I was just wondering, is there sort of, is there sort of a connection? I mean, is it just that it's not, I mean, not so much the, the sort of moving and prey drive side of things, if I can say prey drive, yeah, like sort yeah. Of packing a lot of stuff into that, but we know what that means. Um, yeah, I was just thinking my puppy that I've got at the moment is she's quite interesting in that when she's in her crate and I open the door, she knows she's supposed to remain in a sit, sit stay until I say okay and release her from the crate so if I try and give her a treat while she is in that self-controlled I'm holding myself here thing she she doesn't want the food 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she will sort of take it if, like, oh, if I absolutely have to, but she's not. And usually she's really foodie and she's really food motivated. But in this particular situation, that's the only situation that I've encountered this, that she doesn't want that food. Because what she most wants in that moment is to get out of the crate or the car cage or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so there's, I then, that then led me to think, well, is this just that? in these situations we're talking about the dog wants the birds or the dog wants the decoy or the dog wants, you know, whatever that thing is instead of the food. And so it's about learning how to switch between different reinforcers. And then we get onto the whole market queue and different market queues with different reinforcers and that whole subject. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's there's, there's an expect an issue of expectations. What's the dog expecting? Um, and, And in the case that you're describing, she's in the crate that behavior of sit has probably historically been reinforced with the cue to jump out of the crate, which is, which is really fun. Um, I, I might want to push back and this, I'm pushing back at myself as much as anybody on using the word like want or like there, because I don't know Mm -hmm. if we can really quantify that. Um, There's definitely a pattern of that uh, in that, you know, this, this behavior in this context, under these conditions, this is the sequence of events that my my nervous system is is you know is anticipating is prepared for, um, and I'm, I would get in just as much trouble for using all those words too, depending on who we're talking to. But um, it 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 you know can we? So there's two questions there. So can we um, teach the dog in contests like that to also take food? Yes, absolutely, we can. Um, should we? Maybe. Um, is it worth the trouble? I don't know. It kind of depends. Um, with the crate situation, because I tend to use the crate as that, as that take it with me hermit crab shell point of success that I'm going to use in training in a lot of environments. I, and I want a way to test food taking or to, to you know, kind of book in the behavior. Um, I think it's worth it, but in a, under other circumstances, I might not worry about it because you have a perfectly, perfectly reasonable function for that behavior. Sit makes you know, earns the opportunity to exit the crate. And that, you know, that ultimately is, is also very functional. So, so yeah, I don't know. It could go a lot of ways. Yeah. So I think you're saying we can't, we can't go so far as trying to see inside the dog's head to what they want, but we can just observe the external behavior in terms of what is being, you know, is the, is the behavior getting reinforced? Is it getting stronger? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, provide this afterwards. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so it gets really complicated if you really want to go down a rabbit hole. Um, you know, we work for reinforcer reinforcement, or we see. Let me rephrase that. Um, we behave with the outcome, a reinforcement process, for a lot of stuff we don't necessarily like. So reinforcement isn't always something that we like. It or rather. A stimulus doesn't have to be something that we would, if we were to verbalize, say, you know, I really like that or really want that in order for it to have a reinforcing effect. Um, so I, I and I, I think we get the way that we're first taught about reinforcement is we always say, oh, it's the desired outcome. It's something the animal wants. It's something the animal likes. It's something pleasant or pleasurable. Not necessarily. Um, and I, I normally have examples at the tip of my tongue, but I'm, they are escaping me right this second. So hopefully one will pop into my head as I, if I just keep talking and running my mouth. But um, so I, and I just don't know that it's, it's helpful. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, does my, my dog like to chase a ball? Well, do you want him to chase a ball? Like, is that a behavior that would be useful to you? Then let's train it. I don't know that trying to have a conversation about whether or not he likes something is helpful because we would always be guessing. 
Um, and and then and so we don't really know we if we achieved you know he likes the ball well, we've achieved we have a high frequency of ball behavior <laughs> um we have a um we can see that throwing the ball reinforces the preceding behavior very effectively so those are like you're saying those are all observable and measurable so we know that the reinforcement process is occurring does he like it i don't know um i don't know about that um so it's it's to, for me, thinking about all these things as behaviors and then looking at what's the contingency, what are the antecedents, um, that's where I get the practical, uh, you know, best kind of practical application out of it. Um, that lets me adjust my training plan. Right. So we can we can create a reinforcer, as it were. As long We need, do need some kind of reinforcer to work with in the first place. We had zero... Yeah. We need to have something that we can use to reinforce the other reinforcer, if that makes sense. Well, the thing we want to be the reinforcer. Right. You need to have a baseline to build on, for sure. Yeah. Right. Well, that's really interesting. And we could talk about that some more. But there are lots of other subjects I want to get onto. So I don't think we're going to get onto all of them. But yeah. the, the next most important thing that I wanted to talk with you about was the idea of planning sessions. Mm. So I know this is something that you have focused on before. In fact, you have a really brilliant downloadable PDF sort of fillable in PDF um, on your website, which maybe I'll put in the show notes for people um, in terms of planning a session and planning the smallest pieces of a session and then seeing how that builds together into a larger component piece and so on into an even larger piece. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and ask you if you plan your sessions and how you plan your sessions and what is the importance of planning our training sessions anyway. Because um, I know that for me, when I don't plan my sessions, it tends to result in, you know, I, I go somewhere with my dogs, get out of the car, stand there in the rain, think about all the other things I have to do the rest of the day and just be like, oh, let's just somehow I have to exercise them and then we just have to get home again. That's just and then we don't really do much training. It's not a very productive session. Whereas when I go there with a plan, then I feel that I've achieved something. and I come back home. Yeah, actually having done something with my time. So anyway, I um, want to talk to you a little bit about how you think it's best to plan sessions. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, uh, you're exact, like that phenomenon is so, uh, so resonates with me, because I do exactly the same thing. Like, I'll throw my dog in the car, you know, really, I just need to get some training done, but I don't really have a plan, because I'm just very, very busy, just a lot going on. And I don't really plan anything. And then it's a little bit cold, or a little bit rainy. And I could stop and do the training, or I could just let them have a run and get back in the car and go home and take a shower. Um, and I'm a lot less likely to do real training if I haven't thought through what I want to accomplish. Um, beforehand. So there's a motivational component for me uh, in that, which it, it trades off because planning is hard. That that um, the, the mental process of going through a plan, you know, deciding on you know, a goal or an outcome or a focus for the session and then breaking down how, how am I going to accomplish that? What is that going to look like? And, um, and there is, and I've discovered, we were just talking about this this weekend, the power of writing it down, even just very very brief notes, like, you know, just a word, a couple of bullet points and putting it on a post-it note or in, a, or in your journal or, or on a whiteboard or whatever, um, how powerful that is in, in actually implementing the plan. Once it's in writing, it's real. Um, so a huge motivational component. And I've discovered that myself. Um, it is, it is often easiest for me to plan a couple of training sessions or just block them out in advance. So a lot of times I'll do my planning on Sunday evenings um, often I have been to some kind of dog event during the weekend. So whether it's a trial or a seminar or, or a training weekend. And so kind of what's 
what are you know even though even though I, I strive to stay in a positive reinforcement mindset my brain is very good at finding the negatives so Sunday nights I'm usually very fresh on what our weaknesses are <laughs> what are the what are things that we want to work on and so that functions as a little bit of a negative reinforcer to well let's make a plan for what I'm going to do Monday morning um, and so I'll block out you know next three training sessions I need to work on um, you know I need to work on uh, rugby sit at heel it seems to be degrading a little bit I want to add distance to his uh, his go out his send away um, and you know I want to do this other things these are the things that were broken this weekend that I, I want to get stronger over the next week um, so I do a lot of that planning on the on, on Sunday evenings there um, and at that point I'm really not planning out every second of the training session I'm more thinking through um, kind of the goals part of it like what do I what do I want to accomplish uh, and then what are the things that need to happen in order to accomplish that so if I want better right turns what are the elements that I need to work on to make better right turns okay so I need to work on my footwork I need to work on um, offered heel um, I use a hand target to um, to, to uh, help my dog accelerate around a right turn. Um, so I need to sharpen hand target at heel. And then I'm going to put those three, those things together and, and, and kind of a compound behavior. Um, so I want, you know, I'm looking at the elements for breaking that down. Um, and then when I go to do the actual training session, um, and I, and I found it helpful. So let me, let me circle back briefly. I found it helpful to, you know, pull out my calendar and write, okay, I'm going to work on this, uh, you know, Monday morning, um, Tuesday evening, and, and Wednesday evening, like looking at my, my schedule, you know, I have a business and I have you know, a kid and a family. And so I have um, limited windows of time. And if I don't block in, I am working on this skill in this time block. Again, it's just so easy to find something else to fill that time. So, uh, so I will block those in um, during the week when I'm, when I'm my best self. Um, and then the day of the training session, before I get my dog out, I say, okay, today, you know, we're working on a quieter hold on his retrieves. Um, okay, I've got the equipment that I need for that. I'm going to click and treat. How am I, how am I going to deliver this? Well, let me start with a, a chin rest. Okay, so I need it. The chin rest is my go-to mouth close behavior. So um, the structure of that training session is I'm going to warm up with the chin rest behavior. I'm going to deliver um, my treat on the ground. And he's going to lift his head to the chin rest target and I'll click and deliver the treat on the ground and build a clean loop that way. And then I'll present the dumbbell um, and my hand for the chin rest, you know, and I'll, and I'll actually think through what is the progression for this actual session going to look like? You know, what is the, what are the warm up reps going to look like? Um, do I need to move my dog through space um, to get, maybe we're doing jumping. And so I need to be able to move him across the field to get to you know, set up in front of the, the jump facing the right way. Um, so am I going to use a treat magnet to do that? Am I going to be tugging to do that? Um, and so think, thinking through the flow of the session, um, and, and what that's going to look like again, it, it, when I first started thinking that way, it took longer to do that than I did to train the actual session. And now I'm a lot faster at it. So there's a fluency component for me. Um, and I think the most important benefit of doing that before the dog comes out is that it relieves a lot of the cognitive load on on you the trainer so that your brain cells are freed up to pay attention to your actual dog while you're training um bob, mm. yeah bob bailey talks about you know think plan do review those are our steps and they are supposed to be in they are discrete separate steps you think you plan then you do the training and then you do the reviewing if you're thinking and training at the same time you're blurring the steps together and you're 
you're going to screw it up. You're never going to do as well. And he's exactly right because if I am trying to think or I'm trying to make a plan while my dog is out, my brain is busy, the processor is busy, and it slows down all of the other tasks that my brain is trying to do. So my timing is worse. And I see this, this isn't just a personal problem, uh, but I see this a lot in my students. I can tell if something happens in their training session that they hadn't expected, all of a sudden their cues get a little fuzzier, their timing is a little bit late, their mechanics start to um, start to degrade a little bit, which of course makes the training session uh, a little bit rougher, a little bit less productive because there's less clarity. Um, you get what you click. So timing, timing, whether you're using a clicker or not, um, whether you're using cause reinforcement or not, timing, there is not a way around having good timing to be effective uh, in animal training. And so by by doing all of the, the mental work first, I have a lot I, I have a lot more brains. I can focus my brain entirely on the task of clean mechanics and giving the cues that I intend to give and observing my dog so that I can actually do the actual training. And, um, and that just that difference made my training session so much more effective and efficient. I can get a lot more done in two minutes than previously I could, you know, do in 10. Uh, Cause all the gaps are, are gone. They're all, um, you know, they're, I don't need that extra time to think I know exactly what I'm doing. Hmm. The train. Yeah, I had. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say I had the same because my puppy's five months at the moment, and um, her mum is five, so I'm still sort of training both of them. And and you know, puppies, you got to train everything. There's like this massive list of everything you <laughs> just want to cover with them, and it's overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. And meanwhile, there are things that you know, mum, her mum had just had the litter, and I wanted to get her back into training as well. And so I was feeling completely overwhelmed by all of this, and. I think I was feeling like a failure because I was feeling no matter what I did, there was no possible way that I could train everything. Even if I had a really successful training session or one thing, I didn't think, oh, there's all these, like there's nine other things that I haven't even touched. And so um, I think then I finally thought, no, I have to plan things better because then I'll, feel, I'll look at the piece of paper and I'll think, look, everything has been covered or at least the things that I really want to cover have been covered. Mm -hmm. And so I can trust that. And I can know that as long as I follow this plan, then I am being pretty successful. So that's what I've been doing. So I feel much better now. I've got a weekly planner and I write out on Sundays, as it happens, um, the, the week's training ahead um, yeah. and schedule out, you know, write down what behaviors we're going to be training in each session. And I feel yeah. like we're covering everything now and I'm not feeling overwhelmed and I'm not beating myself up or feeling a failure. And so I'm being reinforced as well. So Good. yeah, anyway, that's just my little experience with it. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I think that that's a completely normal, that paralysis when you bring the puppy home, that you're, there's no way you're going to get everything done and your failure and you're ruining the puppy before they've even grown up. Uh, I think everybody has that just about. Um, in fact, yeah. I, I'm going to, you know, I think people who don't have that, there's probably something wrong with them. We're the normal ones. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and the, the trade-off of course, so somebody's listening and they're going to want to say, well, but you don't know what's going to happen in the training session. And if you just do the plan, then you're ignoring the dog. Yeah. Well, then I, I it's a flexible plan. It's got to be a plan that you can then decide I'm going to scrap this plan now because yeah, I want to Exactly, do right. You have to hold it loosely. Um and and if you're you know, you make the plan and then you're ready to ditch it. Um if things seem to be going sideways and and that's good training too cuz there it should be organic. There is it's a dialogue. You know, you're you're giving and receiving information with your dog. So of course it's going to change. But that doesn't mean there's no point in doing the planning. Um, what I've discovered, it took me a while to even really notice this was happening, but when I've done the plan, again, I, th I think it's because it frees up the brain cells. I've already gone through at least the first half of the thought process of, of the what ifs, you know, what if, 
you know, this error happens, you know, what if this happens? And I've, I've eliminated so many of the decision points or I've pre-decided on them that then when something does happen, whether it's expected or not, it, I'm able to adjust much more, much more quickly um, and fluidly to the new, the new situation, whatever it is. And sometimes, sometimes the, the adjustment is, you know what, let's go back in your kennel and I'm going to go have a glass of wine and we're going to think about this. But, <laughs> um, but a lot of times it's like, okay, let's go to your mat for a second. It turns out that I'm asking for too much here. I need to reduce my criteria. What could that look like? Let's see if, you know, can I change my body position here um, and go right back into the training session without really losing more than a few seconds instead of, and, and I'm making those adjustments faster on the sessions that I've planned well than on the ones where I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. Um, and again, I think my brain is so busy. I don't see the changes in the dog as quickly because I'm, I'm trying to think and train at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, and if you do scrap a plan or you do make a change, then you can always look ahead to the next day's plan and right. change that. Because you'll be like, right, now tomorrow we're going to practice this because this happened today. And so you're going right. to be constantly changing the next day's plans. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. Well, I think that I'll draw things to a close here, Hannah. It's been brilliant. And there's been so there's so much more we can talk about. Um, but it's just been excellent to talk in depth about those two subjects I think and I think especially the um food motivation subject is going to be really really useful for loads of people with gun dogs who are finding it difficult to get them to respond outdoors in the presence of game and scent and so I think that's a really useful water water yeah when I run into (laughs) yes yeah the thing with the water is that if the dog doesn't want to come out of the water it's a bit difficult to get them out You can use it as a reinforcer, but only once, and then they'll just stay there. <laughs> Definitely with Labradors, for sure. Yeah, excellent. Anyway, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and talking to us about those um, subjects. Um, and I do, I'm going to put in the show notes information about where people can learn more about you. But do you want to just sort of give us your website and tell us a little bit about your book or, and the podcast, which I already mentioned, just so that people can find that information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, my website is hannahbranigan.dog, and that's H-A-N-N-A-H-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N. So there's one fewer ends than you expect in Brannigan, but you'll get there at hannahbranigan.dog. Um, and my podcast is Drinking from the Toilet, which is available on, as far as I know, about any any of the, your favorite podcast um, outlets, and you should be able to find that. Um, and my book, which just came out this past year, what, oh gosh, I guess last year, 2019, I don't, I'm still getting used to 2020, um, is Awesome Obedience. And it's a kind of a, um, a recipe book for getting started um, applying positive enforcement and splitting and good shaping and good training practices to um, the sport of obedience. And it is written for kind of an AKC, um, CDSP, UKC audience. Um, tons of overlap in, in Canada where the rules are very much the same, but I, I have, I have heard, you know, really the principles of, of good training are the same. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of good feedback from folks in lots of different countries um, who are, are able to use a lot of the exercises um, and then just make, you know, modifications to suit the rules for their, their particular um, part of the world um, and their sport. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Hannah. Um, and we will catch up again soon. I'm sure. Great. Thanks for having me. This was fun. All the line. So a huge thanks to Hannah for her time there. And, you know, I was making a few notes when I went back and listened to that when I was editing it, because I just thought there's just lots of really good stuff in what Hannah had to say, which might get a bit lost or buried. And so I sort of listened through and picked out a few things that for me really kind of resonated and 
seem to be things to highlight and draw people's attention to. So firstly, if you have a dog which um, is lacking in food motivation, is not perhaps interested in food when you're out and about, then first of all, to be thinking about whether you're overfeeding the dog and whether the dog weighs too much. So those are things which are related, but not necessarily the same. So sometimes people overfeed dogs, but the dog is not overweight. So sometimes the dog will just stop eating when they're full, but so much food is being offered regularly that the dog doesn't really value it very much because it's just always available or there's too much of it offered too frequently so firstly overfeeding is a slightly separate thing to being overweight and then of course there are dogs who just will eat that excess food and then will also be overweight so those things are things to be thinking about um and it is true i i would agree with what hannah had to say that the majority of the time when i see dogs that are lacking food motivation in my classes it does tend to be that the dog is overweight um, and or that the dog is being overfed. So that's definitely something to be thinking about. Then also some sort of medical issue as a possible cause. It's always good to rule that out and, you know, have a chat with a vet if you need to. So that's another thing. And then assuming that we really are dealing with, um, you know, a food issue, a, food, a reluctance to eat food, which is not due to either of those things, then these are the things that I picked out from what Hannah said that blurring the idea of where the dog can and can't train. So finding the place or location where the dog is able to respond and then moving into the area where they can't respond and then moving back into the area where they can respond and moving into the area where they can't respond and just doing this over and over again so that you sort of blur these two areas together and the dog ends up being able to respond in both. So I thought that was a really useful idea. Um, and also the idea of scent being a factor in this. So we can't see scent. So I think it's easy for people to not be aware of it. And it is a, and probably an incredibly important um, thing for the dog, scent. Um, they're so scent focused and driven by their noses. So one thing that I sometimes find is if I want to remove a scent from the dog that I can just step in the way of it. So if the dog has a nose in the air and they're clearly smelling something that's being carried towards them, then I can just step in front of the dog's head and that will interrupt that scent. It will take it away from the dog's nose because I'm kind of blocking it and my scent is there instead. So if you're not able to move inside and to move the dog away from this distracting scent, then you can try stepping in front stepping into the scent cone so that the dog can't any longer smell that scent and then of course you could step away again so that you could always try that as one thought i had i like this idea of building a bubble where the dog can eat the food and then trying to experiment with making that bubble larger or taking that bubble on the road so i thought that was a useful analogy as well um, hannah also talked about using motivating operations so such as a time of day um, or time when other dogs are eating. So that's going to motivate your dog to want to eat because other dogs in the house are eating at that time um, or the time of day that the dog expects to be fed. So the sort of scheduling effect of the dog comes to think, oh, it's food time now. And then you can capitalize on that slightly increased desire to eat in order to be able to do a bit of training at those times. And then, of course, there was also this idea of splitting. So um, <clears throat> Hannah talked about 
moving outside, so opening a door and stepping outside, that as soon as the hand goes on the door, the dog anticipates that they're about to go outside. And obviously the arousal levels can go through the roof at that point. So then you can split that. Can you put your hand on the door handle and then cue a behavior? Or can you bend the door handle down and then release it without opening the door and then and cue a behavior? So um, trying to really split, you know, if you find that you're, it's difficult to find a place where the dog can do it and the place where the dog can't do it or your place that you're going with the dog can't do it is just way too much way they definitely can't do it there then it's likely you're not splitting finely enough so you need to kind of find a way to go beyond the bubble where your dog can do it but not so far beyond that your dog is just way unable to respond so split finer as always don't reinforce food refusal uh, with whatever you do next. I thought that was quite interesting as well. So if your dog refuses the food, think about how you respond to that. What do you do next? Because potentially what you do after the dog has refused food could reinforce that food refusal. So it's a little bit like if you've got a dog which won't play and you're trying to in- increase play drive and sometimes the dog plays and sometimes they don't play and you're trying to play tuggy with them and they refuse to play tug and so then you go oh well just put the tug away let's pull out the food because then we could still do some training if I use food as a motivator well what you've done really is you've taught the dog to refuse the toy because then it makes you produce the food which only reinforces the dog for refusing the toy so it's the same kind of thing when we're talking about refusing the food so think about how you're, what you're doing when the dog refuses that food and how that may be reinforcing the food refusal. So I also like this idea that Hannah sort of talked about the crate and using um, pattern games that comes from Control Unleashed and Leslie McDevitt. So there's kind of um, the, the pattern of what well, you can have any, many, many different kinds of patterns, but basically they involve... Um, the, uh, the click and the treat and the behavior which you're clicking and treating before that so behavior click and a treat and then a behavior and a click and a treat and the behavior can be something really really easy so you, know, you can have the up and down game where you might put a treat on the floor and the dog looks up at you and you click the dog looks up at you and you put that treat back on the floor again so the behavior is just the dog looking up at you so you know you can you can have the behavior so easy that you've got something that you can click but the idea I think is that with this um, working on the food refusal idea that you're going to build this pattern at home so the dog is really familiar with the actual structure as it were and then you can take that structure out with you on the road into less familiar environments but because the structure itself is familiar the dog ends up falling into doing it even though the environment is distracting does that make sense um, it's a little bit like when I say structure, I actually have in my head um, sort of tent pole structure, like before you put the tent up, like you've got a an actual, not a kind of a theoretical, vague, abstract structure, but there is like a structure. And so when we're training at home, we are building that structure and structure um, for me has associations with safety and reassurance and uh, for me, it's something that, that is known for the dog. So the dog knows it. And then when we take that structure, which the dog knows, which is safe and predictable for the dog, and we take it away from 
the house where the dog finds it pretty easy to do stuff and we take it into a new environment because the structure is known and predictable and safe and reassuring for the dog the dog's still able to uh, respond so I thought that was a really interesting idea as well um, those are my notes really on the on the food motivation subject and then in terms of planning stuff um, I'm going to try to find the planner that I mentioned in the, the interview with Hannah. She has a great uh, planner, which you can download from her website. And if I can find a link, I'll put it in the show notes so that you can download that. Um, I also liked what she told us about Bob Bailey's sort of think, plan, do, review. So um, the importance of separating out those stages and not trying to combine more than one of them at once so you you think about what you're going to do you plan what you're going to do you do it and then you review what you did so rather than squishing those things together kind of like that too anyway those are my little kind of notes which I pulled out when I was editing the interview and thinking back through the things we talked about I hope that is useful to some people because I know that lots of people struggle with dogs in the field which are not interested in food and they just don't know how they can train using positive reinforcement if the dog is turning its nose up at treats so hopefully this has given you some ideas if you have a dog like that and also hopefully i will be back soon with the next podcast episode um in the meantime if you are enjoying the podcast do remember to write a review on itunes or stitcher or whatever it is that you use to listen to the podcast on and also remember that my book is available on Amazon. It's called Force-Free Gun Dog Training, The Fundamentals for Success. I know, by the way, that some people are having difficulty getting hold of the book on Australia because Australian Amazon, for some reason, isn't stocking it. I can't get to the bottom of why Amazon are being very vague about it and not very helpful. But if you live in Australia and you would like a copy of the book, then please do email me because I can send you one direct from me um, at home here. So... You can drop me an email at joe, J-O, at dogworks, that's D-O-G-W-O-R-K-S dot org dot U-K. So that's all for this week, everyone. It's been a really super interesting interview for me uh, with Hannah, and hopefully I'll be back soon. Hold the line. Hold the line.